Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Chris, welcome to Real Vision Building Blocks. Thanks, Ash. It's great to have you here, man. You're one of my favorite guests. We've had you on the platform so many times, and it's great to have you here to talk a little bit about your own journey in this space. Really excited to have this conversation. First, before we get started, uh, talk to us a little about your background before you got into the digital asset space, before you got into crypto. Yeah, kind of had a a more traditional route out of college, went to work at Morgan Stanley, um, kind of wore a couple different hats. Um, took all of the the series exams that you take to be able to, you know, make markets, trade options, trade futures, you know, be a um, series 24 so for general securities so that you can run an office and run a desk. Um, did a little bit of private investing and a little bit of iBanking and, and some deals, um, Facebook being one of them. Um, so kind of had a wide breadth of, of exposure, always been a, or as soon as I could afford to be a real estate investor, I became a real estate investor. Um, so always been, you know, trying trying to be hyper diversified, but not to the point of um, having one side of the portfolio really dictate the performance attribution, uh, but just have your core. All right, I know I need commodities. I know I need real estate. I know I need stocks, and I, and I know I should have fixed. Things. I've never been a bonds person, but that's just not really been something that ever I thought the juice was worth the squeeze. So that's never been a big part of what I invest in, and then done some silly you know, green stuff that always lost money. So pr- provided tax write-offs. Um, so, you know, I've, I've just had that approach that I l- had learned a number of different attributes of each of those sectors. And then I really fell in love with the ability to harness uh, computational power in the quantitative space, essentially because it's like you could run a fund for XYZ cost if you can run algorithms or you need to hire 50 traders and PMs. So right. that alone was enough motivation to dive in. Um, and really the the CMT program, which is a three-year program given by the CTA, or C, uh, the, um, is it what CTA? This is a certified market technician. Charter market technician. Charter, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's given by the CFA organization, which is Charter Financial Analysts. Um, that really gave me enough acumen to start to do it. Yeah. So tell us, how did you discover crypto? That is a little bit easier of a story than the the lead up to it, because I, I've always studied history. And so yeah. history, if you understand the winners write most of what you read, but then there's also the losers and you need to take both, read about both from both time periods and somewhere in the middle is what actually happened or what probably happened. So I've always been able to deduce things from that lens. And when I consume information, I'm a natural skeptic. Um, (laughs) So 
I always go, yeah, BS, and try and disprove it. That's any scientist, like you operate by null hypothesis. Um, right. So that had really exposed me to not only the, the history of the ebbs and flows of the success of different societies, whether it be uh, going back as far as you know Mesopotamia, Babylon, et cetera, or the Egyptians and then Romans and Greeks, you've you've got all of this two-sided literature on it where you can go with the the noble greats like Herodotus or or you can go the other way from a local commenting uh, through some of the periodicals of the time. Unfortunately, as humans, we've done a terrible, terrible job. Uh, the last few thousand years recording history. A lot of it's been destroyed, unfortunately. So we're, we're just not exposed to as much as we'd like to. Or, and um, that's kind of given me guardrails of how I consume that information. But essentially, it exposed me to the fraud that is monetary policy, the, the, the counterfeiting that the tax system uh, and monetary system do within whether it's United States or Europe or et cetera, uh, and how that actually translates into society uh, and, and creates harm. I know this is something that you're so passionate about. Tell us a little bit about your view on this, particularly for someone, you know, the interesting thing about crypto is you have people who are very financially sophisticated, not very interested in technology, and you have people on the opposite side who are really well kind of in the weeds on tech, but don't really have the finance and economics background. Give us a sense of what your view is of what's happening with monetary policy right now for a non financial, non-economically sophisticated audience. Well, it's, it's not just right now. It's it's the advent of central banking, right? Um, or, or, and, and then you could even deduce it further to centralized authority, right? Um, what got me as it relates to crypto is the lack of human intervention, right? So to answer your question more specifically, as tech has modernized and allowed for arguably more manipulation, more fraud, more counterfeiting, right? Before, okay, we had the gold to back the currency, maybe it only back 10%, 50% doesn't even matter. Now we just control P and we put it on an account at a member bank, right? There's there's not even the printing, the physical printing of a bill anymore, which someone has to put in a warehouse and then you've got pallets and then you have to distribute it. That manual process inherently limits the amount of abuse, right? When it's just zeros and ones and you can conjure it at will with no cost, it, it, it becomes a, a graver situation than it was before. And when that really was technologically possible, it was late 1994. And then began aggressively, you know, in the latter part of the Greenspan era. So explain why you think crypto is so compelling and what solution uh, it comes up with for for, in your view, what the problems are. Dude, we could speak two weeks on that. Um, let's let's start with just an equity comp, right? So a crypto company can operate, excel, and become cash flow positive with less people, less friction, less barrier to entry than any other sector of the economy, right? So, so if you look at Ethereum, how I would judge their quote unquote profitability is the, is the revenue of the network, right? It's around 10, 10 billion annualized. You can see it live on Etherscan, right? So all of what I just said has four or five attributes that differentiate it from equities. Number one, the transparency. I as an investor can see the literal value created by the network itself real time without 
you know, a form 10, an 8Q, you know, all, 8K, all the quarterlies, no earnings calls that I have to be on to kind of read it, the tea leaves for management, which is basically never going to be bearish ever. Um, so that's one positive attribute about it. Then there's the cost structure, right? If I'm a publicly traded equity, and, and sorry, equities, I'm, I'm just picking on you because it's obvious. Um, you've got all the compliance costs, all of the, the regulatory filing costs. You've got cost of capital. You've all this financialization, overhang, bureaucracy, et cetera, that have, call it somewhere between six, 600 bips to 1,000 bips of cost. Well, crypto companies don't have any of that, at least at, at present. So right there, you've got transparency and efficiency. Then the, to the total construct of public equity markets has changed in your and I's lifetime. Before it was, hey, you and I have a good idea. We're not hucksters. We can go raise $25 million in a, in a, I bank, a, a you know, privately I-banked IPO list on the pinks and raise some capital to go hire people and, and manufacture something, right? Now it's well before that I, idea generation occurs. You've got multi-layers of venture, then private equity. You've got debt, both, most of the time, four or five years of history, burning money. And then, oh, we're doing enough revenue now, dump it on the public, Right. And that's been call it, call it 20 years. You don't have this. I get to participate in a new idea and enjoy the growth from inception because those opportunities are now for, for those in front of it. So that's a, that's a third attribution that's different in crypto. Uh, the, the fourth is that it still is allowed to destroy itself, i.e. Luna, right? In, in, in equities, you've got companies that have had a, a negative burn for a decade or more. You've got half the S&P, give or take, that are zombies, um, somewhere between 40 and 50, certainly. So if Fortune 500s, 40, 50% of them need more debt to pay off existing debt, that is not a productive functioning economy, if that's the case. Crypto does not require that. If something is bad, it may take two years, but then it will fail. And it is allowed to fail. There's no bailout. Sorry, everybody's wrong. You lose money. So that's that's another feature to it. And then the fact that I can hold these assets myself. So I'm my own bank. I'm my own sovereign. That does come with personal responsibility and a, and a, a lot of different tech acumen. But those you know four or five things differentiate it from equity investing in terms of how I look at it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you do right now. Tell us a little bit about Hyperion Decimus. So Hyperion Decimus is digital asset manager. We currently have two hedge funds. One is a quant-driven multi-strap fund called Libertas. And then we recently launched an, a digital asset income fund uh, that's currently just our capital, a couple friends and family. We're incubating it live uh, and opening it to the public July 1st, essentially. Um where we want to be able to have two tranches of what digital assets can give you. One is one part quantitative and, and, and obviously speculative in, in growth nature. The other is, can you derive income that's pay, payable so that you've got cash flows? Um, 
we don't really look to you know, create any funds that are uh, too exotic. And we think that having those two tranches um, is now both sustainable and, and growable in, in the digital asset space. Um, so from our perspective, you know, we're kind of done in, in the creation of funds, but what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is look at differentiating the alphas, diversifying the alphas, what what win, wins and loses on a short-term, long-term time horizon, what are the aspects uh, that are growing that need to be paid attention to in each of the, the sectors within digital asset uh, space, and just keep evolving and adapting at a pace that keeps driving alpha. Yeah. So let's explain a little bit about what you do day-to-day -day, uh, at Hyperion Decimus and how you think about what you do. Well, we defend capital first, right? Um, one, one thing that's always struck me is the criticism of, oh, hedge funds are underperforming and I'm paying for underperformance. Well, are we 100% the S&P? That's not diverse. You know, that I get that that's a benchmark because you need a scorecard. But the purpose of a hedge fund is to hedge, right? So first and foremost, the, the job is to hedge. And you, do, you can do that in a lot of ways. You can do that by getting out of the way. You can do that by trying to generate gains from market making or HFT. You can do that from options. There's a lot of ways in, in crypto you can create hedge situations that really were a lot harder to do a few years ago. Um, so that's number one is to hedge. Number two is to, to generate alpha. And what alpha means is risk-adjusted return. We're not trying necessarily to beat the performance of any of the underlying crypto assets that we trade. And we trade, you know, 30, 35 of them. Um, and really that, if I can go back to the first layer of hedge, most of the risk management on our end is not only spent in the construction of the hedges I mentioned from a financial standpoint, but underwriting the assets. Luckily for us, you know, we ha have always had little to no exposure to stable coins and, and stuff like that. So we did not suffer a horrendous drawdown recently because we, we had virtually no exposure. So you're, you're referring to Terra, obviously. Yeah, Terra UST, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we can jump into why. Uh, basically, I think stable coins are antithetical to crypto, but that's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. Um, so I think underwriting both quantitatively and qualitatively, the assets is the first layer of of hedging in addition to, you know, futures, options, trading, et cetera. Um, and then to get back to alpha, that that's creating risk-adjusted returns, right? So you're looking at, uh, are my returns like highly correlated to the market? Do, do they have higher beta? Uh, what's the quality? And, and that's the same thing how you'd look at, uh, you know, dividend discount modeling. Like what's the quality of the cash flow? Right. This is each strategy that we have, and we we sub some out as we develop new ones. Um, what is the quality of the return stream derived by the factors, four or five, six factors that we're using for the algorithmic strategy? And we want those to basically be not not right or left tailed, right? Not have kurtosis, which means it relies on a couple huge wins to derive the entire performance. We want the consistency. We want skew and we want positive convexity. The skew, what that means is it makes more than it loses when it loses. And the convexity is the literal equation that gives us a positive outcome or an implied positive outcome versus a negative. Uh, for example, me reversion strategies often have negative convexity because it's it's you're buying an, 
falling knife and it's about small wins and you're taking a lot of risk when you're doing that. Um, you have to mix those in to diversify the alphas, but you don't want to over or we don't want to overweight that. Uh, number one, because crypto are highly momentum driven markets. And number two, you can really get hammered when those are wrong, right? So if I only have 5% upside, I don't want to have 25% downside. Uh, you might accept 10%, right? Um, so that's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Luckily, our team is fairly old guys, so we can dream up and configure all kinds of different stuff. We we actually just recently broke from the quantitative orthodoxy a little bit and are getting, uh, you know, super discovery level with with combining factors and curiosity, uh, working on different differentiated uh, covariance models, um, and really starting to develop risk modalities for different sectors of crypto. Yeah, this is really interesting for people who don't necessarily have the quant background. Um, you know, this is really about engineering these algorithms, uh, building models up uh, that you're basically doing programmatic trading. And tell us a little bit about what that process is like, particularly for people uh, who don't have the same background that you do, who are trying to understand what exactly uh, what you're talking about looks like in terms of actual execution. Well, execution is a whole nother uh, set of problems well, and I meant, opportunities I meant in yeah. terms of uh, yeah it's in terms of the of, of actually yeah not executing the strategy but building the strategy rather than the yeah right so on the strategy side it, it can be you know something like trend following is very very simple old school buy right. when above the 200 day moving average sell when below right that that's a, right. a a basically two factor model the price bar and the the moving average right it, that's a very simplistic way of looking at um, a starting point what what you want to do when you're you know folks like us is volatility diffusion velocity rate of change um how, how much you would weight volume vo is it 24 hour volume is it 30 day volume is it one hour bar volume um is it order book heuristics is it what's the top of book liquidity and since we've been observing these for all of our careers we we basically have a starting point where we can overweight or underweight on an expected value output of that indicator oscillator factor. Um, and, and so we're kind of, you know, starting a little bit ahead of the, the starting point because we've underwritten this stuff before in many different asset classes. Um, with crypto, it's super nuanced, but it gives us a sort of a test bed to put together and configure stuff that's got reasonable predictive power, reasonably sustainable alpha concepts and be able to you know, base it on enough data to have a leg to stand on. Yeah. So it's very clear for your enthusiasm and passion for this space. You know, as we have this conversation talking about what you're doing, I'm curious, what are you most excited about right now in the crypto space uh, that you're doing or that you might be doing in the near future? Those are two, two different things. What I'm excited about in the crypto space is different than what I'm excited about on our team. Um, so in the, would you like to, Crypto space response first. I'd like I'd like both. Chris. Simultaneously, you're right, ready to go. Um, <laughs> so what I like about the the team is you know we're we're all kind of family, so it's a super fun, um, innovative and creative environment where honestly it's just like create to you know lose, and if you're right, awesome, right? So test, test, test. Um, Ten, you know, 10 years from now where we've got this giant data series to machine learning and blah, 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 blah. We won't have as much fun. It'll be easier on us. But right now we're kind of <laughs> coming to, to into our own to take some of that 
you know, computational power from the mega quants, like, you know, what, what, what fantastic folks like Two Sigma do, uh, where you are running immense amounts of CPU power and analyzing and updating the data. And, um, that part's really fun to kind of graduate up the levels in, in complexity, sophistication and analytics, uh, where right. we're, we're basically evolving as we're getting more data. Um, my team has built and sold a few OMS EMS systems, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of that's public knowledge. So we, we've got the tech acumen that allows us to build and test quickly. So now it's in addition to the, the strategy algorithms itself, it's execution research, uh, which is a really fascinating space within crypto because you've got all these separate jurisdictions of captive order flow. You know, we touched on this earlier, but explain what execution means in the context of crypto trading. So let's take the example I gave on trend following. So buy when above the 200 day moving average. All right. So you take that. That's the strategy algorithm. Mm -hmm. Do this when that. And then, then you've got to execute. Well, is it a market order? Is it a limit order? Is it a right. series of orders? Then you've got to decide, do I want to have price impact? Do I want to pay? Do I want to cross the spread and pay that cost? Do I want to pay, you know, take your commissions? You have all of those decisions to then make, and then you design an execution algorithm so that once the strategy is buy or sell, then it goes into queue and it, then we, we create it. So it depends on the conditions of which type of execution algo is, is automatically selected. But most of our order flow, I'd say 80 plus percent is what we call passive order flow. And for mm -hmm. the listeners, what passive order flow is literally we're creating liquidity within the order book with our buy or sell order. And that can, some common terms are what's called a passive VWAP. That's just volume weighted average price. Um, that's a, that's a common way. We've got names for all of our silly ones. Um, but, you know, we, we customize that to the best of our ability um, so that our execution is low cost, productive for the space, and does not hurt or have what we call adverse selection or toxic order flow into the crypto order books. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and by the way, you mentioned OMS. This is order management systems. Uh, this is something that you guys are building in-house custom uh, for your to actually execute strategy. So you're essentially building that software uh, in-house to do that. Correct. Yeah, it's been built. Uh, a version of it has been sold already um, in January to a uh, an, a large exchange. Um, so we and you know, I've been doing that since 1997. Um, Kamel built Kernex, which was sold to State Street. So we, we've got a history of of folks on our team who have done that in the past. So with crypto is infinitely more complex because your inputs are gigantic and you've got all these fixes and APIs and this, that, and the other coming in. But ultimately, again, it just gives us a little, you know, head start in the process. Um, and basically, basically keeps us out of the way from, you know, having to learn the hard way more, more than we otherwise would. 
Yeah, I mean, it also suggests uh, something about the complexity of this ecosystem that in order to be competitive at the execution uh, of the strategies that you're building, you need to have that kind of granular, fine-grained control of how the order management systems, how the software that's basically executing this whole stack uh, gets run. Correct. Um, it, it is, you know, because we're not routing to one broker or market maker. We're not routing to one, you know, NASDAQ. Um, so it is it is a lot more layers right. of complexity. Um, you can approach it from what we call smart order routing, which is, okay, I've got the buy or sell signal. I've got my, we, we have 16 liquidity venues in, in the fund. So it'll go, hey, right, which one of those 16 is best X? Boom. But only, only XYZ quantity might be available there. So then it's got to go to another exchange. So we've, we've got that configuration, um, that we're, we're always trying to enhance and, and make it better. But right now it's like best efforts. It's good enough for rock and roll, as, as they say. And for us, it, it often creates, uh, and I don't want to jinx it, but it often creates negative slippage where we actually get edge from the way we execute. That's very interesting. By the way, explain that negative slippage and getting edge from execution. Right. So. So in slippage, you've got a couple different factors. You've got your commissions, right? You could say that's, let's say it's 1% commission. Then you've got the spread, which is a spread between bid and ask. In, in Bitcoin, it's often about 13 bips. Uh, let's just round it up and say 50 bips. So you've got 150 bips. And then depending on how, how sizable your order, you may actually knock up. If you're on the buy side, you may actually take out one, two, three, four, asks that will then be a distance away from that top of book sell ask, uh, which is also a sell order. So right. in in a, you know, aggressive market, you can end up paying maybe two or three times what you thought you should, could, or would pay just to get execute the quantity you want. So we have done enough research and have configured this in a way to where what happens on our end is we actually are able to have some sort of execution arbitrage where we may capture spread, go down in the book, buying at lower price if we're on the buy side or selling at higher price. Uh, and then by we call them slices. By slicing the order up automatically into the right size per token per duration, whether, you know, sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes we can we can execute our longest execution is a 15-minute window. Um, and what will happen is we're sending passive orders into the order book automatically un until the quantity we want is filled. Or in some instances, if the quantity we want isn't filled, it will only fill that at that best price. And that's all we get executed. Yeah. So by the way, the second half of that question was, what are you most excited that's about happening in the space today? I think you gave a bit of context about the stuff that you're doing, but I'm curious to hear what you're most excited about more globally, Chris. People aren't going to like this and me saying this, but I love destruction, right? The most capitalistic thing to occur is destruction, right? Darwinism. It literally, the definition of capitalism is price discovery and capital destruction, right? Because it susses out inefficient places that are sucking capital out of the system into more productive places. So I absolutely love the fear I love the panic. I love the destruction because that's what creates opportunity. And this space, it is a unique feature. We say it's a feature, not a bug, um, that I think will lead to more value creation than not. Simply that. And I'm, I'm, 
in this for till death. So I don't care that the NAV of my portfolio went down because I don't anchor my, you know, head or my heart to this equity high of my net worth on paper or in digits. Cause it's just, we already learned a long time ago. That doesn't matter. That's, that's not a way to benchmark your investing, nor is it a long-term sustainably healthy thing to do. All right, Chris, I'll take the devil's advocate argument <laughs> here. You know that that's going to come up in the comments, right? You're going to get people who say it's great for hedge funds when there's destruction, but this causes real pain uh, in the lives of ordinary American workers, savers, retirees. Uh, they will probably also say uh, that central banks are there to balance the scales, to try and figure out ways of uh, smoothing boom and bust cycles. You know all these arguments. What is your response when you hear that? They create the boom and bust cycles, so they don't smooth them. Um, I, I mean, you want to jump further down that rabbit hole, we can. Um, and I, I think you're right that there's always pain. I, I, I'm having pain. Right. You think 30 K Bitcoin versus 69 Bitcoin. I never, you know, I don't sell. I just buy more. This personally. Right. Um, you know, I, I have lost money on paper too. It just affects me differently because I didn't anchor to that one number that made it look prettier. And I'm not anchoring to the one number that makes it look uglier. Doesn't matter. We're my, so the way myself, and my team approach investing is not one that is very common. We'll admit, but. No one forces you to buy. No one forces you to sell. There are consequences of both. And if you don't know what you're doing and you haven't defined your process and you haven't created rules to live by for investing, then you're going to lose. And the only way we've learned it is by losing. So, you know, I get that there's a lot of pain, but that that's where the game comes. Um, and hedge funds aren't immune either. Like as sophisticated and fancy as we are and active on the hedging side, we're, we're still losing money on, you know, in the drawdown. Um, but at the same time, the convexity of the, the next move is so awesome as, as is the risk reward. It's, it's worth going through, especially in crypto. So, you know, a central banks create literally created the boom and bust cycle. I mean, Ash back question back to you name one cycle that they, of, of boom and bust that they didn't create. Um, 29 and 37 29 they absolutely created they 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 were the ones that orchestrated the margin calls yeah but not on the not on the not on the on the policy on the on the uh monetary policy side on the regulatory side same thing <laughs> right and they the roaring 20s were because loose credit mm -hmm. and the depression was tight credit period it's always loose, tight, loose, tight, loose, tight. Uh, what was the second one to 29? Oh, I said 37. Oh, I said 37. 37. 37 was government policy failure. That was FDR failing. Um, yeah, awful socialistic crap policies. So Th you're right. That was not central bank created, <laughs> that one. Uh, but you didn't really have the boom before that, right? You had a cyclical reflexive bounce within the, the the markets at the time um but that wasn't a a return to secular uptrend all right chris, nice I'm, pointing chris that out. I'm i'm going to ask you to take off your cynics hat and put on your optimist hat 
And I'm curious to hear about where you see the future of crypto going, because I know you're optimistic about this. I think you have uh, some interesting views of, of how crypto could improve the world, uh, potentially, potentially, as we look forward over a three to five year time horizon, for example. I, I would lead with the decentralization aspect of it. Um, I could pick on a lot of things like the monopolies, oligarchies, the, 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 the really the wealth divide and wealth inequality is maxed out because, because of central banks, because of centralized government. Narrowing that is a function of two things. You got to increase the velocity of money, which ironically only happens when rates skyrocket. Um, but you, you also need to see the equality of opportunity come in. And that really is only there in crypto right now. Um, so I'm, most looking forward to the further decentralization, the further disruption that all of the different types of, of cryptos can and crypto companies can do. And hopefully that serves as an example for people to gradually adopt it. Cause we're, we're still, you know, at six, 7% on the adoption curve. Like we're nowhere near the apex on, on the adoption curve. Um, so that, that's probably the most exciting. I would say second most exciting is seeing the max FUD on Bitcoin. And it just, ta it takes all that abuse. When, when 80,000 of it were auto liquidated from the Terra Luna disaster, I'm sitting here going, Oh my God, because we see this coming and you're never going to go all out, all in. You can't short all or buy all. Like that's not how you responsibly manage money. But you know, we, we, we honestly thought it could have been much worse than what it was, uh, but there were tons of buy side to absorb that sell. And that was, that created hope. Also, I think you've gotten. To the point where you, you see things that Fidelity are doing or Anderson Horowitz, this isn't going away, right? So that confidence interval, you know, we, we were around in the 18 March 2020 crash. So each time we go through these 50, 80 percent drawdowns, the the prospects going forward look even better, and there's less against it at that point. Um, and then most personally, I love when the regulators and central bankers all scare the hell out of the regular public on it. I, I actually was at the beach for Memorial Day weekend. I heard some people just talking, oh, Bitcoin's nothing. It lost this. And oh, I can't do what it's designed to do. And I'm sitting there laughing, knowing, oh, that's the same thing as your shoe shiner telling you to buy stocks, uh, just in reverse. Um, so when there's no sellers left to sell, you can only be bullish. Chris, great conversation. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with. I really think a good backdrop to when you're when you're in crypto, you're looking at all this data, right? And you see the price action. You can blame some of the lack of volatility stocks on the central banks. It doesn't really matter, but we're we're all not conditioned to see this monster volatility. What I like to look at to dive into the weeds is the on-chain data. I can't stress enough mm. to folks mm. to really Look into projects, read the right papers, understand um, what what how there's are going to be successes and failures for that specific chain, and then look at the on-chain data itself. You look at how much development or lack thereof is occurring. How, is it permission? Is it permissionless? And then you find like what you're going to gravitate towards. Usually, if you're passionate about what you invest in, you're you're not going to really lose or lose that much. So I really advocate looking into the on-chain data as a backdrop to offset the the insane gnarliness of the volatility itself. Chris Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues. Continues.